Our good and our holy God, truly nothing compares to you. We thank you so much. We thank you so much for being who you are. We thank you for doing what you do. Lord, we pray today as we worship you that you would give us strength for our journey, that you would help us live this week in a way that would bring glory and honor to your name. Lord, guide our decisions and give us courage to do that which is right. Give us grace to forgive one another. Give us joy and give us hope. God, we thank you. We thank you that you do not leave us orphaned in this world, but that you are with us. You're close to us. You guide our steps and you direct our paths. God, we give you praise. We thank you for doing that. We thank you, God, for being who you are. God, we thank you for this day of worship that you've given us, a time to gather with fellow believers, a time to pray and to give and to sing, a time to be in silence, a time to greet one another in noisy haste, time to meet new friends, welcome the stranger. God, we're grateful that in this season of worship, you have given us an opportunity to gather around your word. We do that now. And God, as we do it, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Lord, we pray that you would make our hearts tender, that we would receive your word as a seed planted in good soil. God, we pray that you would give us feet that would walk quickly to do your will. Lord, we pray that you make our hands strong, that our work in this world would be as your very own. And God, we pray that a word of hope and life and testimony would be found on our tongues. Lord, this is our prayer as a family of faith, and we pray it together in the strong name of Jesus, saying together, amen and amen. Friends, please be seated. I'd like to invite you today to take your Bible and turn with me to Philippians chapter 3. We'll begin reading halfway through verse 4 in Philippians chapter 3. Boast in Christ and have no confidence in the flesh, even though I too have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else has reason to be confident in the flesh, I have more. Don't you just like Paul's humility there? Circumcised on the eighth day, a member of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Yet whatever gains I had, these I have come to regard as loss because of Christ. More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, 
but one that comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Today, all around the world, on this last Sunday in the Lenten season, millions of Christians have gathered in houses of worship and they have heard these words read. It's words that Paul wrote to the church in Philippi so many years ago. He loved these people with a passionate, zealous love. He wrote to them to encourage them. They'd gotten themselves stuck in life. They, they'd been moving forward in their faith. They'd been making great difference in the world. They'd been helping to turn the world upside down for Christ. And they just sort of began to bog down. They ran out of steam. They lost their vigor and their passion. Do you remember when you were kids, did you have one of those little cars that you'd pull back across like this and just let it fly across the hardwood floor? Anybody have a car like that? Well, at the end of that run, it just stops. Well, that, well they weren't at the end of their run, but they were coming close to it and, and they were slowing down. Uh, entropy had begun to set in their, their corporate life. And Paul, he heard about this. He heard about the infighting. He heard that there were people that were following this powerful leader and others who were following that powerful leader and how it was, it was affecting their church in negative ways. And he wrote to them. And his letter, he wrote to them beautifully about seeking Christ above all, about life defined by Christ, about moving forward in their faith, moving forward in their lives, moving forward with gladness and joy. I read the book of Philippians at least four times a year. It is my favorite epistle in the New Testament. And after all these years, I've been doing that for years. After all these years of reading the book of Philippians, I, I can walk away from Philippians reminded of four things every time. These values of Philippians, these values of individual life with Christ and corporate life with Christ. When you read Philippians again and again and again, you, you get to, to the point where you realize what's really important, what's really valuable in a church. And for Paul, his understanding of it, uh, as he talked about it, but one thing, he, he valued rejoicing, the power of rejoicing over and over and over and over and over again in this epistle. You hear this word, rejoice. Be joyful. Return to the source of your joy. You will not find a growing Christian. You will not find a vibrant fellowship absent the presence of real joy. 
You say, Paul, well, you had it easy. Really? He's writing from jail. <laughs> it calls him to rejoice in, in life. And we should hear that word. A second thing, uh, all, through, all through Philippians, you get this call to encouragement. This call to encouragement. To be an encouragement one to another. We walk into this room week after week. And many of us are bone weary. A little freaked out about what Monday morning is going to look at. Tired, maybe a little lonely. Many times we come in with our best on and a smile across our face, but our eyes lie and our eyes tell the truth and our eyes say, help me. And into this environment, we are called to pour courage into one another. There are days where you're really strong and others are really weak. On those days, hey, don't take it as an opportunity to do something else. Show up and be present and love the people close to you. You say, well, I, I don't have any felt needs today, so I shouldn't be part of the church. Clap for yourself on those days you don't have felt needs. Because there's other people feeling the pinch of life really bad. And they need you to pour some encouragement into one another. When you read Philippians, you hear again the call to be an encourager. Don't you just love encouragers? Can you, can you see them? Can you see their faces in your mind right now? Those people in your life that were encouragers to you? They're worth more than rubies. I wish that they were common as table salt. But they're not. Because being an encourager is being someone who walks really, really closely with God. And most of us have many miles to go before we sleep in that direction. Be an encourager. Third thing, again and again and again, Paul talks about prayer. And the central role that prayer plays in the life of a Christian, in the life of a church. This call to prayer. This is what makes us really weird. A lot of the things we do as Christians, other people do. And maybe even do it better. But this is one thing that makes us really, really different. Because this is where we, we keep a, a life uh, bubbling with God as we talk to God in prayer. You will not find a vibrant Christian or a vibrant Christian community that's not a person or a place or a people of prayer. A few Sundays ago, Susie Jane stood in this pulpit. She gave us a, a great challenge. She said, after a sermon on prayer, God burdened her heart to call us to pray for, for our ministers and the ministries in this church. She said, I, I believe God would have us have 150 people to committed to that. She said, I, wanted, I began with this idea of 30, and God challenged me, and, and I want to have 150. Do you remember that? Were you here for that? And a few of us went, huh, can we get 150 people to pray? That's all they do, just pray? Normally prayer is something we tack on something else. Like before a meal or after a sermon. Can we get 150 people just to sign up to pray? We're at 111. We can finish it out today. I've never known a growing Christian or a growing vital church who wasn't a place or people of prayer. And the last one, and Paul talked about this. He talked about the dependency that he and the church had on the help, get this, of the Spirit of Jesus. 
What a phrase. He said, I'm counting on the help of the Spirit of Jesus. Meaning for Paul, Jesus wasn't just a notion or an idea or a character on a felt board. That that very Jesus who touched the lepers and preached a sermon on the mount and sweat in the garden and died on the cross and rose from the tomb, that very Christ Jesus was an ever-present help in life and a companion by our side who promised never to leave us or forsake us. In the person of the Holy Spirit, Paul said we depend on the help of the Spirit of Jesus. And it was his life's desire to know Christ and to be shaped by Christ and to have his life and his days and his hours and his moments defined by the hand of the helping one, the Spirit of Christ. Those verses that I just read a moment ago, they are about that. They're about living life in such a way that we walk with an awareness that we are being helped by the Spirit of Jesus. Paul talked about it in knowing Christ. And, and for Paul, that was the pinnacle. Throughout the Lenten season, we've been talking about moving forward in life. Moving forward with God. Growing in our faith, growing in our relationships, growing up, and growing a vision as large as the world. And that happens in our lives when we, like Paul, when we, like the Philippians, prioritize knowing Christ, being known by Christ, and receiving from God's big heart and strong hands help. Bottom line. I need a lot of help. You're like, hey, that's not hard. We know that. Bottom line, you need a lot of help. And God, God offers help. And he doesn't subcontract it, friends. He comes himself. And he strengthens his people. So today, for just a few moments, I want to linger over the words that we read a moment ago and highlight a few ways that we can move forward by knowing Christ. If you're a note taker, the first thing you might want to jot down is that we can move forward by placing no confidence in the flesh. That was the second part of verse 4. He said, I boast in Christ, but I have no confidence in the flesh. I tell you, you ever watch the job, Dirtiest Jobs? Have you ever seen that job? Somebody's got a really hard job, it's really tough, and, and it, maybe it's an obscure job, uh, and they've known this guy for a while, you kind of get a little idea of what it's like to have a really dirty job. You, you know this? Ryan Charles had a family member on that show one time. It's something to do with turtles, right? It, yes, your dad. It's, it's quite, a, quite a thing. You know who I think they ought to profile on Dirtiest Jobs? You know, who I think would be really great? University presidents. <laughs> I think that'd be tough, don't you? I mean, I, I, let's just have a conversation here. I mean, you've got to manage and lead and direct, and you've got a whole bunch of people you can't fire. <laughs> Man! 
That sounds like a dirty job to me. I once read about a university, they had a, a no confidence vote. They used to have that on pastors. They called it the annual call. Uh, I was invited to preach at Pisana Baptist Encampment. And when I was invited, they said, Matt, uh, you have to agree for three years. I said, I can do that for three years. That sounds great. And then they said, but you're only guaranteed one year. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, after the first year, they vote. And if they like you, you get to come back. And then said, they do that again? He said, now, don't worry. You'd have to be either really bad or do something really stupid to not get invited back. I said, define bad and stupid. <laughs> but, but every year at Pisana, they have an annual call. Universities have no confidence votes in their leaders. We ought to get all the parts of ourselves together and have a no confidence vote in our own flesh. Last week we talked about that old biblical phrase, the, the flesh. It, it is our life disconnected from the touch, from the help of God. Our flesh is when we look at God and say, we're going to do it our own way. Oh, we may not make that decision, but we just go out and live that way. It's about walking through life practically as atheists, calling on God only in the deepest kind of pinch. Paul said, if anybody had a right to boast in life disconnected from God, it was me. He said, I did everything right. I was squeaky clean. I crossed all the T's. I dotted every single I. I ran past my peers. I had it all together. And he was totally a wreck. And he was totally lost. And he was totally in need of God he was totally stuck in life and was not moving forward. And many of us, we get there too because we put our confidence in all the wrong things. It's an epidemic that just sweeps the world. The old word for it was sin. A person who lampooned this in modern time was that great writer, Flannery O'Connor. She wrote a, a really salty short story titled The Complete Life, The Lame Shall Enter First. And in that little story, there were, there were several characters. There was one named Shepherd. He was the daddy. There was the son, whose name was Norton, and a young man named Johnson. Shepherd was a proud atheist. He believed he could go through life without any reference to the divinity of God or grace or any kind of outside help at all. He was a dispenser of wisdom in his own way. He was something like a secular priest, only he felt that he was better off to deal with the world because at least he had, quote, been trained for it. He thought the highest ideal was to help people get over their problems not recognizing that he too had problems. He brought a little boy home from a reform school named Johnson. And Johnson had to interact with his own son, Norton, who he is losing him day by day through grief. 
And one day he was sitting there talking, Shepherd was, to Johnson. He looked at him stonily. He said, I, I, I ain't asked for no explanation. He said, I can tell you why you've done what you've done. I can help you understand your problems. I can help you fix them. I am Shepherd. I am the wise one. He said, I don't need that. I already know why I do what I do. And Johnson said to Shepherd, Well, good. Suppose you tell me what's made you do the things you've done. A black sheen appeared in the boy's eyes. Satan, he said. He has me in his power. Rubbish. Rubbish, he snorted. We're living in the space age. You're too smart to give me an answer like that. O'Connor goes on with this story and you begin to see rather quickly that the little boy with all the problems had a better grasp on reality than that cocky man who believed he could navigate life without God. The lame, indeed, shall enter first. Rubbish. Rubbish. Well, that word, that word's also in the text that we read today. And that word helps us understand something of Paul's view of these matters. Because he believed all of life disconnected from God. Even the very best that life could offer was rubbish without the Lord. Second thing you might want to scribble down this morning is we can move forward by recognizing the surpassing value of knowing Christ. Paul said everything compared to that one thing is rubbish. It's lost. It's second. All rubbish is not necessarily evil. In fact, what is rubbish? Rubbish is something that we use for a time and no longer need. It's a banana peel. There's nothing evil about a banana peel, but there's nothing lasting about it either. And Paul said in comparison to everything that this world has without God, everything compared to knowing Christ is rubbish. And he talks in this text about knowing Christ. He talks about it in the language of salvation. He says, I, I, can, know, I can know God. And I can know God not through my own merits or through my own achievements, but I can know God through faith. I can know God because Christ came for me and he lived and he gave his life as a ransom for many. He was raised from the dead. I can know Christ in his sufferings. I can know Christ in his resurrections. I, I can know Christ through faith. I can know him. And by bearing witness, he invites us in. He says, you can know him as well. This, he says, is of surpassing value. This is the pearl of great price. This is what really matters in this world. And compared to knowing Christ, everything else is lost. 
Here he gives us a life that it conforms to what Brueggemann called an odd baptismal identity. That we're stamped. As we come to, to know Christ through faith, we are stamped with the markings of our baptism. And everything is redefined by the light. By the light of that grace. By the light of that mercy. Everything gets a new definition. Our victories, they get a new definition. Our failures, a new definition. Life, death, hope, grace, everything is defined now by the cross and the empty tomb and life with Christ. There is new hope. There are new days, new moments, new opportunities. We can move forward in life. We can grow up in faith when we long to know Jesus, when we long to fellowship with his suffering, when we long to taste the power of his resurrection. I want to contrast two views of life. One I recently read about in Larry Brown's novel, A Miracle of Catfish. What a title. Larry Brown's one of the last of the sort of southern Gothic writers and this was his last novel. In fact, he died while he was writing it. And his editor cleaned it up a little bit, sent it on to Algonquin, and they went ahead and published it without a conclusion. When you got a good track record, you can pull that thing off. But early in that novel, he had his protagonist, a man named Cortez Sharp, think about the seasons of life and think about the end of life. And this is what he said. He said, watching each season pass and wondering which one would finally get him, he didn't want to go in the spring because the fish were biting and the weather was too pretty. He didn't want to go in the summer because of homegrown tomato sandwiches every day. I'm with him there. He didn't want to go in the fall because the leaves were turning and wood smoke was in the air and you could kill some squirrels. That's not bad either. And in the winter... Somebody had to feed these cows or they'd starve. As far as he could see, there wasn't going to be any really convenient time to go. So he was hoping just to keep going. For Cortez Sharp, a man living in the flesh and disconnected from God, that sacred event of death was just an inconvenience. It was a hassle. Somebody'd have to figure out how to feed his cows. Contrast that with a conversation I recently had with my 92-year-old grandmother, Rita, a woman who's walked with God for many, many years now. She looked at me. She could only see the silhouette of me because she's lost most of her vision. But she looked at me, and she said to me, Matt, she said, I'm grateful for so many things. She said, I never thought I'd live to be 92 years old. I didn't make any plans for that. She said, you blink your eyes and 92 years are gone. They're gone. 
She said, take every day and appreciate it because 92 years goes like... She snapped her bony fingers. She said, Matt, I, I didn't have plans for this season of life, so I'm just taking the days as they come. I'm taking them in doses, a little at a time. I'm finding things to keep me busy. She said, I don't rearrange my furniture anymore because I, I'm kind of walking on memory. She says, I've got two friends left. She said, one is as senile as I am, but she knows what she doesn't know, so that's really good. She said, the other one calls me late in the day every single day, or I call her. We're just trying to check in and making sure that the other is still alive. She said, Matt, I'm grateful for so many things. But she says, I'm ready. I'm ready in so many ways. She said, I'm ready for what's next. If you live a life disconnected from God, your last breath is the greatest tragedy because there's no more tomato sandwiches to eat or squirrels to kill or cows to feed. There's no more smell of wood smoke in the air. But if you move forward in faith, receiving the grace that comes from the cross and living in the light of the resurrection, that final breath, it's an enemy that has been defeated by a Christ that has swallowed up death in victory. And on the other side of that, there's what's next. And at the end of it, if you can view the next step that way, then every day before that has been lived in a far different way than someone that's just living to kill some squirrels and feed some cows. Every moment becomes real and hopeful and sacred. Life is like this. We don't have time to play around. We have to decide and decide quickly what matters. What matters. And what matters is knowing Christ and being known by Him and having that relationship pour out into all the other relationships in our life. To have that grace define our days and our moments. So finally, as we're closing out today, the last thing for us to consider, and this is by way of application, is that we can move forward by straining forward to what lies ahead. That was Paul's language. I, I, I'm not... I'm not stopping. I'm going to continue to live. And I'm going to live with and for Christ. I'm straining ahead. I'm looking forward to what comes next. There may be a person or two in this room 
You just sort of camped out in life. You're parked. You've grown enough. You've prayed enough. You've learned enough. You've loved enough. You've given enough. You're just sort of parked. Don't do that. There are others that are tempted to do that. Man, you see somebody going down the road with a backpack on their back. You think they might camp out under the stars in 72 degrees and you just want to leave and go with them. You're tempted to take an an off-ramp in life to veer off. Do not quit living for Christ. He says, I strain forward toward the prize because Christ has taken hold of me. If you are Christ, if you belong to Jesus by faith, do not quit following him. This means every day can be a new day of hope and opportunity. This means every moment can be a moment where we can say very honestly to God who knows us better than we know ourselves, we need your help. I need your help. I've tried this on my own. I've done it my own way, and I've made a wreck of it. Or we can say I've done it my own way, and I'm a smashing success in the eyes of my peers, but I'm bankrupt in my heart where it really matters. Help. Help. The wisest thing any of us could do is say to God, Help. 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 He is an ever-present help. Let us humble ourselves under his mighty hand that he may lift us up. God, we thank you for being who you are and for doing what you do. God, we thank you for a chance to live life in the light of your countenance and your grace, in the light of future and hope. Lord, we thank you that we can live life with a sense of sacredness because... We know you, and we're known by you. God, as we sing this prayer of commitment, I pray for anyone in this room that is struggling in a, in a place of decision. Lord, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and that they would have courage to follow you. Lord, for all of us, I pray that we would humble ourselves to say, Help us, Lord. Help us live. Help us live. Lord, I pray for anyone here who might need to join this church or confess their faith in you. I pray that they would come for your glory and for their good. God, guide us as your people. Make us a people of joy. Make us a people of prayer. Make us a people of encouragement. Lord, help us through your powerful spirit. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. David, please lead me.